Thanks for choosing this BGSM podcast. It's great to have you on board with us. My name is Liam West, and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. On the line with me today, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Jonathan Dresner, a family medicine physician who specializes in sports medicine. He somehow manages to balance multiple clinical roles, a position at the University of Washington, and his passion for sports cardiology. This is an area where he's considerable expertise and has had a lot of value for the sports medicine community and BGSM itself. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss ECG interpretation and the new international criteria. We'll only briefly be mentioning the ECG screening debate in this podcast. So if you want to hear more in-depth about this debate, head elsewhere on the BGSM. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Jonathan Dresner. Thanks very much for having me. Over the past few years, there have been some very high-profile cases of cardiac emergencies in sport. Do you think that there's a responsibility on the global sports medicine community to upskill in their knowledge of dealing with these scenarios and potentially even how to prevent them from occurring in the first place? Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a great question. And, and really, sudden death in sports and the prevention of sudden death in sports has, has been in the spotlight and I think a priority of the sports medicine community for a long time. The problem is that it's, it's quite challenging. It's quite challenging to identify the athletes who are at risk of sudden death um, and also sometimes uh, identifying them on the field and, and providing proper management to save their life can also be challenging. In sports, uh, heart-related disorders represent about 75% of all sudden death during sports and exercise. And so the first priority of the sports medicine community and of sports professionals who are responsible for the care of athletes and athlete safety is to make sure that they are prepared to respond to an athlete who has collapsed and potentially in cardiac arrest. So of course that means proper emergency planning, availability of defibrillators, automated external defibrillators, um, understanding how to recognize sudden cardiac arrest, provide prompt CPR, get the defibrillator, et cetera. And, and, and with those things, I think those are cornerstones of sudden death prevention, but it also leads us to the other side of, of the coin, which is, can we actually identify these athletes before they have a problem? So what is that side of the coin uh, with the early identification? Can you talk a bit more on that, please? Uh, sure. Well, that brings us sort of to, to cardiovascular screening in athletes, which is, uh, of course, an area of particular controversy and, and debate. You know, what really is the optimal strategy for early identification, and can we do it uh, without unnecessary harms? Um, to the athlete or unnecessary uh, costs overall. What we've learned over, over many years is that the traditional cardiovascular screen by history and physical alone is ineffective. It, it, certain, it just doesn't identify the athletes who have disorders at risk. And one of the main reasons is that about 80% of athletes who harbor one of these potentially lethal disorders don't present with warning signs or symptoms or physical exam findings which makes it very difficult to identify them on an evaluation that is based on history and physical exam. And, you know, from that emerged the, the use of non-invasive tools like an electrocardiogram or ECG, and whether or not we can add that to the history of physical um, and provide some benefit to the identification of athletes with disorders at risk. ECG uh, interpretation in athletes is a skill that every sports medicine physician uh, should try to obtain. Whether or not you use that ECG for diagnostic purposes or, or for screening purposes, uh, some, some sports medicine physicians may choose to, to use the ECG only in the setting of uh, concerning uh, symptoms, family history, or physical exam findings, uh, so for diagnostic purposes. Um, but it really is the first step in the workup of, of any of those. 
And then other sports medicine physicians may, may choose to incorporate an ECG within the screening process. But either way, you really need to understand how to interpret an ECG. And I think we all know that there are challenges there, um, challenges to correctly distinguish the physiologic or normal changes that um, manifest on an ECG related to athletic heart changes and regular training and distinguish those changes or findings from true ECG abnormalities that may represent a pathologic cardiac disorder and require more investigation. That's great. And I think quickly give sort of a plug to the ECG module that is housed on the BGSM. And we'll put a link for that into the, into the podcast, um, which has really helped me sort of try and get over and understand the, the difference between a normal and an athlete's heart. So I guess when I started the medical school, which is over a decade ago now, I was told to fear the athlete's ECG. It's too difficult to interpret. You're just going to get it wrong, give it to an experienced cardiologist. Do you think we're getting better with this interpretation in general? And maybe I might not have to always depend on my friendly local cardiologist. Sure. I definitely think we're getting a better and more accurate at it. And I think it's also okay to collaborate with your friendly cardiologist as well. ECG use by sports medicine physicians has really increased or evolved over the last decade. And it started, I think, with the first guidelines for ECG interpretation in athletes, which were from the European Society of Cardiology in 2010, that created two categories for ECG interpretation, those that they thought were normal, physiologic, and related to training, and separated sort of the other category of ECG abnormalities they thought might be related to pathologic disorders. And I think this was the, the, the first sort of practical approach to, to looking at the ECG. And so, so I think, Liam, you know, that what you heard in, in your training was, was, was probably true, that the challenges of looking at the ECG in an athlete, if you didn't have experience, if you didn't have a guideline, if you didn't have something to follow when you looked at the ECG, it really created a lot of problems. I've always said to some of my um, trainees, imagine that you're in the hospital setting evaluating one of your patients as an inpatient. The nurse hands you a brand new lab, and the lab uh, comes out at 425, and you have no idea what the lab means, and you know, I have no idea what the reference range is. How are you possibly going to interpret that lab in, in the setting of, of your patient? And I think the same is true when you look at an ECG. Everyone has some training in how to look at an electrocardiogram, but unless you really understand what, what the range is, what the normal findings are in an athlete, what, what the pathologic findings for the diseases that we're looking for in that age group or that age range, um, then I think it becomes very difficult. So in, in 2010, we can be grateful to the, 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 the leaders from the European Society of Cardiology, um, Domenico Corrado, Antonio Felicia, that, that, that led um, some initial interpretation guidelines, and certainly I learned a lot uh, from those individuals. But ECG uh, guidelines have evolved, as we know. Um, in, in 2013, we had the opportunity to publish what became known as the Seattle Criteria. This was uh, an international uh, collaboration from an ECG interpretation summit that was held in Seattle, Washington. And we tried to revise and update ECG guidelines and to make them more pragmatic for use and specifically to define in table format almost, here is the list that you need to, to look at that would define normal versus abnormal. And, and if the ECG is abnormal, you need to do more evaluation. 
I think that's when um, ECG interpretation started to uh, infiltrate the sports medicine community with, with more regularity um, and with more interest that finally you'd have a guideline that was practical that as a, uh, a primary care physician or as a sports medicine physician that you could understand and that you could implement. And hopefully if you're working with your, your local cardiologist, you're both using the same guideline and looking through the same lens. The Seattle criteria were, were tested um, in a number of uh, independent studies that, that demonstrated that if you apply the Seattle criteria, you could improve the specificity or lower the false positive rate, uh, but not lose the sensitivity to detect individuals with the disorders that we care about. And, and so we, we made a, a good improvement with the Seattle criteria. But since then, a number of studies have, have come out that motivated us to actually revise uh, the Seattle criteria. And um, in uh, March of 2017, uh, what's known as the international criteria uh, were published in, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. These recommendations for ECG interpretation, again, represent a, a wonderful international collaboration of sports cardiologists and uh, sports medicine uh, providers that have experience and expertise in ECG interpretation in athletes. And from the Seattle criteria to the international criteria, um, the changes were really motivated by good studies, scientific data, and ways that we could further improve the criteria and improve the specificity without compromising the sensitivity to detect the disorders that we care about. These new guidelines they also help not just in the interpretation, they also help on what to do next. Absolutely, um, th th that's a great point. You know, unique to these guidelines is a clear guide that links specific ECG abnormalities with uh, the recommended secondary evaluation of those ECG abnormalities. So uh, a direct link from ECG abnormality to what to do next. And hopefully this can help providers do ECG uh, interpretation and understand what the proper secondary testing is when you have some of those ECG findings. This may um, hopefully decrease some clinical variability in the testing that's done. It, it may also uh, ensure that some athletes receive the proper evaluation, that, that some stones are, are not left unturned and that they get the, the workup that they need given a specific ECG abnormality. And I think they go hand in hand. You can't look at an ECG properly, identify something that's wrong and, and not know what those next steps are. And, and obviously as a sports medicine provider, those next steps are done in collaboration with your cardiology team. But now we have a, a guide that was created by a collaboration between cardiology and sports medicine. And I think it's very useful. It is great to have everyone on the same page and on behalf of the BGSM community. Um, we thank you and your colleagues for your work in this area. Can you take the listener through the key changes from the Seattle criteria moving through to this immune improved international criteria? I think the biggest change uh, from the Seattle criteria to international criteria is the creation of a yellow flag or a, a list of borderline findings. You know, the Seattle criteria simply had, you know, normal or abnormal. And, and in the international criteria, we still have a normal or sort of the green box and abnormal, the red box. Um, but we added uh, the yellow box uh, of borderline findings. And I think when the panel of experts looked at the body of, uh, of evidence in the literature, 
there were some findings that, that just became more difficult to categorize as truly normal or abnormal. Sanjay Sharma and, and his group, which have done uh, incredible work driving uh, this field and, and many of the changes that were uh, incorporated into the international criteria, had published a study of what's called the revised criteria. And um, in that article uh, suggested the um, inclusion of this uh, yellow box or borderline findings. And I think when we uh, really thought about it, while it to some extent makes using the guideline perhaps slightly more complex than the Seattle criteria, I think it is more true to the science. And we included in that yellow box findings like right bundle branch block, uh, left or right axis deviation and left or right atrial enlargement, where the uh, presence of just one of those findings can be considered uh, within normal limits and not requiring more evaluation in an asymptomatic uh, athlete. But the presence of two or more of those borderline findings would require more investigation to rule out pathologic heart disease. And, and until we have stronger uh, evidence and science for those specific ECG findings, um, I think it's uh, appropriate to have that yellow zone uh, included. Everything's not black and white with this. Have, have there been any more changes that the listener should be aware of? Sure. If you're, if you're familiar with the Seattle criteria, um, one of the biggest changes between the Seattle criteria and the international criteria is how we define pathologic Q waves. In the Seattle criteria, it was, it was the long, skinny Q wave, um, greater than three millimeters in depth in two or more leads, or greater than 40 milliseconds in width. And what we found is that in athletes who generally have high QRS uh, amplitude or voltage um, related to athletic heart changes, which is a normal finding, that they may have larger Q waves as well to go with their large R wave. And at least in our experience with uh, ECG screening in high school and college athletes, pathologic Q waves using the Seattle criteria definition was our number one reason for false positive results. So we, based on uh, work done from a, a few different institutions and, and comparing ECGs in athletes versus ECGs in patients with known cardiomyopathy and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we were able to, to redefine what we think is the right cutoff um, and new definition of pathologic Q waves. So the new definition in the international criteria is a Q wave that represents more than 25% of the ensuing R wave or a ratio QR 0.25 or is greater than 40 milliseconds in duration, sort of that wide um, Q wave. And with that, I, I think we have uh, significantly reduced uh, the false positive rate and, and not compromised our sensitivity. In looking back at our, our own data set, this, this reduced our uh, false positive rate uh, and our total abnormal ECG rate in our uh, college athlete study uh, by over 30%. And, and I think it's just a, it's a, it's a move in the right direction. There are a couple other changes um, to the international criteria. Um, that I think are worth noting. One of those is is that we understood people were applying the Seattle criteria to young athletes, uh, those sort of in the 12 to 16 year uh, age group. And the Seattle criteria were, were not necessarily uh, intended for that uh, younger age range. And we wanted to look at that and, and understood that the, the presence of juvenile two-wave inversion could be a normal finding, both in the pediatric population as well as uh, the younger athlete. And so included in the international criteria is recognition of uh, juvenile two-wave inversion in athletes under 16 years old as a, a normal finding 
usually presenting with uh, two wave inversion isolated to the v, V1, V2, and V3. Um, and again, in an asymptomatic athlete, not necessarily warranting more investigation. On the, on the flip side, we looked at uh, two wave inversion in the lateral precordial leads or V5 and V6, and there is increasing uh, evidence that these findings are more concerning for pathologic uh, cardiac disease, specifically hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and that T-wave inversion really is never normal um, beyond V4. And so if you have T-wave inversion that extends to V5 or V6 alone in a single lead, this warrants more investigation. The, the Seattle criteria uh, included uh, T-wave inversion in two or more leads. Um, that is still true for the international criteria, except when we look at V5 or V6. Uh, just a single lead of T-wave inversion is enough to warrant uh, more investigation. And with that, the investigation um, needs to be thorough. And the investigation of uh, lateral or infralateral T-wave inversion um, is one that is uh, still evolving, but more and more, uh, including the use of cardiac MRI. Echocardiography uh, remains the, the initial test, but it is difficult to look at the apex of the heart that you are most interested in in, in these um, lateral repolarization abnormalities on the ECG. And it's difficult to look at that portion of the heart accurately with, with an echocardiogram and be certain that you're measuring the right wall thickness. Cardiac MRI just gives more accuracy, more detail, and also you can measure um, the presence or absence of, of late gadolinium and enhancement. So in our recommendations for markedly abnormal ECGs uh, that include lateral or infralateral T inversion uh, more than a couple millimeters in depth, um, cardiac MRI really needs to be a standard part of that evaluation. And I think more and more of that's being included, which will provide the, the, the proper investigation uh, for that for the athletes. And then the last couple of things that we added are, are to the international criteria would be um, we put epsilon wave on, on the list of, of red or, or abnormal findings. Epsilon wave, as you know, is a small deflection that occurs after the QRS complex, but before the T wave, usually in V1 and V2, and can be a, a, an indicator of uh, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, or what was also known as arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Epsilon waves are a late finding in, in the disease, and, and sometimes there are little artifacts on the ECG or QRS fragmentation or something that can, can mimic or look like an epsilon wave. So this is a challenging area, especially for the non-experienced ECG interpreter. Uh, but nonetheless, if it's a true epsilon wave, I don't think anyone would argue that it shouldn't be considered an abnormal finding. And then lastly, we, you know, uh, to, to coincide with application of ECG guidelines to younger athletes, we also applied the, the ECG criteria in the older age group. And as you know, the, our concern for the presence of occult coronary artery disease in athletes as they, as they get older um, increases, and specifically after the age of 30, coronary artery disease becomes the number one cause of sudden cardiac arrest or sudden death in athletes, more so than our cardiomyopathies and our um, ion channel disorders or electrical disorders. And so when we have uh, some ECG abnormalities that we might uh, see in our older athlete group, and specifically some of our elite athletes, uh, professional athletes, uh, maybe Olympians, and they have uh, findings such as pathologic Q waves or maybe some of the repolarization abnormalities, you have to consider the usual workup that we do in our young athletes, but you also have to consider evaluation for a coronary artery disease. And, and that would start with our, our typical risk factor assessment. 
you know, a check of a lipid profile, blood pressure check, uh, you know, family history, et cetera, but, but also may include some, some form of stress testing to make sure that they don't have cold coronary disease. Thanks for the deep dive there, John. I look forward to becoming over 30 and officially in the older age category. <laughs> Perfect. So there's a lot to take in there. Um, where do you think the listener could go uh, to sort of read in their own time or, or find out a bit more in their own time in depth about these changes on the ECG? The first place to go is, is, to, is to read the article on the international criteria for ECG interpretation in athletes that, that's published in BJSM. It was published in March. It is freely available, freely downloadable to, to any physician, any person. And, and I think uh, we can provide a link to that. And I think that is the first place to go. It's a, it's a guideline type article. So it's on the longer side, but it has many ECG examples in there to look at and, and to get you started. The second place that, that people can consider is, is we are hosting a CME conference on prevention of sudden cardiac death in athletes in Seattle, Washington on November 2nd and 3rd, 2017. So upcoming this year, sponsored by the, the, the University of Washington, the Center for Sports Cardiology and Department of Family Medicine. And this conference is gonna dive into the details of ECG interpretation. We have um, the best of the best in, lecture, in lecturers coming, Sanjay Sharma, Aaron Bagish, uh, Mike Ackerman, Kim Harmon. Um, they will be there and they're gonna, they're gonna help us. We're gonna dive into the international criteria talk about the details of ECG interpretation, talk about the challenges, have some ECG interpretation workshops that are sponsored by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, and of course, link those ECG abnormalities to the proper secondary investigation. And then lastly, review some of the important diseases that we care about and what do we do with those athletes once diagnosed, which is a very challenging issue in terms of management and the potential or not for return to play. So, so that's a uh, uh, just a, um, uh, a briefing of what of, of what this conference will cover. I really think it's going to be a, a spectacular uh, educational event and, and invite anyone to, to look at uh, our brochure and, and the website on what the conference offers. And then the last place that, that I would turn is um, related to the Seattle criteria. Uh, we developed BMJ uh, ECG learning modules that you referred to uh, earlier. Those are still available and a great resource and a great place to get um, education and training on ECG interpretation athletes. Our plan based on this conference in November is to uh, update or revise some ECG training modules and we'll provide some some more information on that uh, to come. People can keep their eyes peeled for that and BGSM certainly will promote that. That conference sounds great. It's a who's who of sports cardiology and, and like you said we'll put the link for that in this podcast blurb and people can go along and have a look at the program and if they're around Seattle get across and if they're not get across anyway. <laughs> right. On behalf of all the listeners and myself uh, John thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule with the Seahawks currently actually uh, record this chat yeah well liam thanks very much for having me and and uh guiding me through this uh this podcast links to all of the material that dr dresner has just spoke about can be found in the podcast blurb if you get the chance get along to the university of washington center for sports cardiology and department of family medicine conference that john was just talking about on thursday the 2nd to friday the 3rd of november 2017 to further delve into ECG interpretation in athletes and other issues around sudden cardiac death. Thanks for sharing your time with the BGSM. Connect with us via the app or our social media channels. Have a great physically active day. Cheers.